Welcome to the Beyond Medicine Podcast. My name is Rami Webby, and I'm your host. In this podcast, we bring you inspiring leaders from across the medical landscape and explore the cutting edge of science and medicine. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Beyond Medicine Podcast. Really excited to share this episode with the CEO and founder of I'm Aware, Yanni Tomi. Yanni's become a great friend ever since I moved here to Austin, Texas, and you know we've connected on a lot of different subjects from biohacking to health tech to a wide range of subjects, but Yanni is someone I consider a, vin- a visionary and an innovator and someone who really cares about helping people. And you know a, lo- a lot of this conversation is talking about the mission and vision and future for digital health and for at-home lab testing. And so I think there's a lot of great tidbits in here, but it's also just a fun conversation, and I hope you guys enjoy it. Before we get into the episode, though, if you haven't checked out beyondmedicinegroup.com and joined our Slack community, make sure you check it out. If you are a physician or an innovator, a founder, or even an investor, Beyond Medicine Group is really the community for you. I built this community as a bridge between our clinical community and the health tech community, and it's basically your one-stop shop. So check it out, beyondmedicinegroup.com forward slash community. You can fill out the form and join our group. Yanni, thanks for joining me, man. How are you? Yeah, I'm great. How about you? Doing well, doing well. For those listening now, I'd love to go about and talk about your background because you have a really interesting story. You and I have connected about this before and would love to hear the backstory of Yanni, you know, what you grew up doing, what your career trajectory looked like and how you went to, to founding I'm Aware. <laughs> yeah, it's a long story. So <laughs> I'll give you the kind of the cliff notes on that. In Canada, we call them Coles notes. So uh-huh. when I came down here and said, oh, I'll give you the Coles notes, they're like, what's that? Cliff notes? I'm like, yeah, same thing, right? So <laughs> Coles notes. Um, yeah, so I'm a math major computer science type of student, you know, and, and kind of everything I've done in my life, I always find find it easy to digest data. Mm-hmm. Uh, so everything I did in a career leading up to iMore was about building systems and technology and, yeah. and data-driven decisions. So not too different from, you know, scientists and clinicians. Mm-hmm. My mom was an ER nurse and my, my dad ran a construction company. So Kind of out of that, I spent 20 years building product and it was really through my brother getting a cancer that I came to realize the doctors that were charged with preventing his illness mm-hmm. were misdiagnosing him, ignoring his symptoms, telling him it was back pain. What was really happening was a tumor was growing and touching up upon his spine and giving him pain that way. And so thankfully my mom was an ER nurse and finally just sort of self-diagnosed him and called 911 and said, you know, there's something going on here internally that, that we need to investigate. And she really pushed the physician to look into it. And then sure enough, they found like a cantaloupe sized tumor in his body. So can you share what kind of, it was testicular cancer and he was the classic 35 year old guy Mm. that, you know, should have probably been caught by some type of screening instead of being told it was muscle pain. So that was, 11 months of that back pain and symptom. And then kind of overnight, the physician audience changed from a primary care in a small town in Northern Canada to some of the best doctors in Toronto who are now helping him with that. And I saw this transition from healthcare doctors to sick care doctors. And 
the most noticeable thing was I don't think there's a such thing as healthcare. <laughs> I think I think all doctors are pretty much in sick care in the traditional system. Yeah. And so I learned a lot of things as a product and technology guy during this experience was the the doctors that then were taking care of my brother and helping him, you know, recover from this ordered blood tests twice a day. So they were looking for all kinds of markers and looking for this. And as they, you know, induced coma and, and put him through chemotherapy, he was six months coma induced, multiple chemotherapies, and they measured him frequently. And I watched when his white blood cell counts went down, you know, to zero, they put him in this isolation room. And I was just amazed at how much data they collected from him. But prior to that moment, there was zero data collected about yeah. my brother. So the natural question you ask yourself is, well, couldn't we collect data beforehand, you know, if this cancer didn't go from zero to hundred and it was progressing, shouldn't there have been measurable biomarkers or measurable data points? And mm -hmm. obviously these doctors and experts said, yes, there are things, you know, you could measure. So naturally then you ask yourself, well, why aren't we measuring those? And, you know, you learn about complexities and yeah. reimbursement and costs and all that. We can't go measure everything in everybody, mm -hmm. but one day I imagine we can do a lot more data collection. So that's what led me to kind of just serendipitously get to meet the doctor that helped debunk Theranos. Uh, mm -hmm. He was a clinical biochemist and had discovered the PSA biomarker and was able to measure these biomarkers of cancers in five microliters of samples. So even less than a drop of blood. Well, how did you get about meeting him? Did you, you I think, know, tell him your story or? So friend of a friend sort of got a connection and said, hey, I understand your brother went through something. You got to meet this doctor who's at that time was just like looking for ways to screen for cancers. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. So that's why I call it a bit of serendipitous luck yeah. there. So I got to go and, and see this doctor building this ELISA type of, you know, manual LDT test, mm -hmm. lab developed test. And was this what year? 2017. Okay. Yeah. And so I did a test with this MD, PhD and drew a capillary sample and a phlebotomy sample, like a venous sample mm -hmm. and ran it through the ELISA and like 33 minutes later, I got quantitatively the same number from fingertip and from vein. Hmm. And I was like, bingo, this is the moment where yeah. you got this science. I've got this story. Yeah. I do product. We got to join forces and go out. And if what happened to my brother is true, there's gotta be millions yeah. of people out there who are sort of not getting the care they need, not having access to the data they need to make decisions. Mm -hmm. And that was the birth of iMore. Where was Dr. Is, is Dr. Stefano, right? Dr. Diamandis up in Dr. Toronto, Diamandis. Mount Sinai. Yeah. Sorry. So he was in Toronto. Yeah. He was in Toronto. Okay. Yeah. He, and you said he was one of the doctors that debunked Theranos. Yeah. He published a parallel study of Theranos patients. Mm -hmm. And this was in CCLM, I believe, which is Clinical Chemistry and Laboratory Medicine, a mm -hmm. leading paper. And just showcased that patients who were going through Theranos testing and then you know, he parallel tested them with just traditional methods. We're getting different results. And so that along with, as you've seen yeah. from the dropout, investigative journalism and yeah. people just really pressing <laughs> into it. 2017 was basically the year that that sort of all yeah. started, that house of cards collapsed. So yeah. it seems like such a simple way to actually debunk something, right? Like you take the test, you test it against the traditional way of collecting blood and, yeah. and checking for accuracy. How was, how did that like get swept under the rug for such a long period of time? I don't know if you've seen that show, but it's like, I haven't yet, oh my God, I the dropout is like, it's yeah. everyone should watch at least yeah. some. Is know, it on Netflix? Where is it? Hulu. Hulu. Okay. I'm going to check it out. But you can see like they hid behind lawyers and, you know, proprietary IP and all that. And, and a lot of people were fooled by a lot of smart people. And mm. I think we know better now. So for example, just that I'm aware of, we have venous to cap data. So basically showcasing 
you know, equivalency between the methods huh. for every biomarker. Yeah. And, and so that's just like a minimum standard now yeah. that you can have that. And I think there's ways that we're not going to have those Theranos moments again yeah. in, in this industry, but. Yeah. So the, you said you met Dr. Diamanos uh, 2017. I'm not sure what the timeline was. Was this around the time that Theranos was getting debunked? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I think they, by the fall of 2017, okay. it was like shuttered. Okay. I think CMS took away their license okay. to perform lab testing somewhere in around that, yeah. that later summer, fall. And then that was basically it fell apart at that point. Was Dr. Diamandis involved actively in saying, look, they're, this is not doing what it says it's doing? Yeah, I think it's the publication accurate. in CCLM was one more piece of evidence okay. that just sort of led people to believe that it shouldn't be trusted. Yeah. Got it. Okay. All right. So, you know, Theranos is getting debunked. You meet Dr. Diamandis. It's like product, a light bulb moment. You being kind a product person, you see the vision, you being a vision, knowing you, I, you're clearly a visionary, see the vision for what the potential for this could be. Is there any thought at that at this point, like, or I guess the better question is, did the Theranos situation have a effect on the potential for point of care testing and for advancing this technology because people are now skeptical or just hesitant to invest in this sort of thing? Yeah, actually, yes. But mm. what we did was we went out on the offensive around the narrative mm. and basically said, if everyone's talking about how companies are going to be the next Theranos, then let's talk about how we're not going to be the next Theranos. Mm. And let's talk about how we build lab relations, how we use data transparency, how we use CAP-CLIA lab certifications, how we publish data to CCLM how we get independent doctors to assess this and maintain basically anything Theranos did, we said we'd do the opposite of. And that's gotta be the minimum foundation for how a company like ours should operate. So we, yeah. uh, anecdotally to investors, we, we put out an investor slide that said, we are anti-Theranos and then check marked all the things we wanted to do as a minimum to, to counterbalance the narrative of, well, how are you guys not Theranos? Right. And so just going out on the offense like that and saying, these are the things we're going to do. And then the yeah. founding culture and DNA of this company is going to be this way so that we will never not do things. Was it just a great way to go out and do yeah. that? Just from a technological, I guess not technological, but from a science-based perspective, what was it that made the point of care test that you developed with Dr. Dumondas different than what Theranos had created? Because right, Theranos had raised a bunch of money and created this test, but it just didn't work. What made it work when you were developing this with Dr. Well, I think, is there anything? I think no. the, the number one clarification is, is that it's, unless you're really talking about single analyte lateral flow technology, point of care is not quite where we need it to be. Even Theranos, when they called it point of care, was really just trying to miniaturize an LDT to right. run on site. And you are starting to see that happen, you know, with devices like I think Q and others that are doing COVID mm. sort of point of care. But what we wanted to get really good at was perfecting the LDT. So you're still running a lab-based test, which is what Theranos then kind of moved into was, mm -hmm. was trying to put these lab devices into these, you know, retail locations and, and have people run them. Oh. Or then they eventually just ran them at their centralized lab I see. Okay. at scale. So I'm aware's stance was point of care is nowhere near ready. So let's really perfect that lab developed test. And then once we get good at that, let's explore partnerships to miniaturize. So, you know, I think in the coming years, you're going to see a lot of tests 
like single analyte tests miniaturize into either at home or retail settings or doctor's settings. We have lots of those right now. Mm -hmm. And so what iMore is doing is continuing to push the LDT space into, well, now let's measure 10 tests, 15 tests from just a single dry spot collection. Mm -hmm. Let's get to 25 biomarkers next year, 50 biomarkers soon yeah. so that we can truly do a broad yeah. spectrum screening at home. Yeah. And for those listening, wondering what this test actually is, it's just a finger prick. You collect the blood on a sample and I think it's like five drops, correct? Yeah, so it depends on, we now are getting to the point where we can personalize based on who we're testing, mm -hmm. whether it's like a broad range screener test or a follow on monitoring test. Mm -hmm. The minimum sort of, you know, drops we need is two to three. Each drop's about 50 microliters, let's just say. Yeah. So you can get about a hundred microliters to do a minimum test. And then we have some really, really broad tests that can use 400 microliters and measure a lot of different biomarkers. Got it. So yeah, we've got tests across the spectrum from about two to three drops to eight to 10 drops. Got it. And so the yeah. way it works is the kit gets delivered to your door or you pick it up from one of the locations that you're partnered with. You can take the test at home, you collect the blood on a sample, pack it up in a sealed package, mail it back out. And in a couple of days you get your results and you can see through the platform what your results actually are. And then I'm guessing the results are actually detailed out to you. Yep. And then a lot of, through our partners, we then have partner organizations that then further drive out clinical next steps, healthcare next steps, healthcare professional engagements, consults, items like that. So we have a lot of different partnerships that are helping drive out those clinical next steps as well. Got it. So you get some results, you have questions, a doctor's available to go over your results with you. Yeah. Was that sort of that, you said that was a partnerships avenue that you created? Yeah. yeah. Again, just the way we wanted to focus on being excellent on really delivering at-home labs to also then be really good at doing clinical interpretation feels like, you know, we're trying to bite off more than we can chew right now. So our focus is we really want to be good at that at-home testing experience mm -hmm. and the science behind that and enable kind of the tools to allow other clinicians and healthcare professionals to do what they do best, which is guide their patient. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. I'm curious. I'm going to go all the way back to 2017 because this meeting of two brilliant minds <laughs> coming together to build something is really interesting to me. So you and Diamandis team up and you say, we're going to build this product. Did you have a vision for what it was going to be like? Did you have an idea or did you just say, I want to productize this? And then how did you go about actually building the company, right? Did you have to go and raise funds? Did you go and find some supporters? Like what was that process, that whole startup process of going to build this? Yeah. Well, the day before I met Diamandis, I was just running a, a digital consulting organization uh -huh. focused on enterprise digital. We were building mobile apps for banks, insurance, you know, really focused on that kind of customer experience side, you know, the ability to buy insurance online with five clicks under a couple minutes or wealth management, you know, kind of moving that all digital. I didn't really set out to be in healthcare, nor was I trained in it. And then sort of, like I said, that meeting just changed my perspective. It was, it all kind of collided the history with my brother, my product background, this incredibly intelligent, you know, PhD MD who had a really just a vision to help, you know, patients at home, but didn't understand the first way to bring technology in the home, just understood the analysis and pre-analytical side of things. Yeah. So it was kind of the joining of forces. And it all happened once I saw that, that data from my finger and the data from my vein matched. It was just like this, we stared at each other and it was like, hey, we got something here. So 
I mean, you did know, he already know this work? He already knew at the time it worked, right? Yeah. Yeah. And he was thinking about continuing to roll it out through to physicians and hospitals. Mm. And I'm like, well, what if we go more direct to consumer and start a movement where patients can go to their doctors armed with information that the doctor can trust? Like, what if we flip mm -hmm. the table around? Right. So that was the kind of the basis for I'm aware. And yeah, it, we went out and created lots of different content around pitch decks and how we could see this science evolving over time. Mm -hmm. Went out and found investor support. I was up in Canada and, and Canada wasn't really as open to this type of innovation as it is in the United States. So found American investors. I moved to the United States, now in Austin from Toronto. Mm -hmm. That's where you and I have now met. Yep. Yeah, I think there's just a lot more appetite to driving innovation in healthcare down here. And since then, you know, we also went out and supported COVID testing. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of, again, a bit of an accident. But when I did the COVID self-collect test from a, a competitor and, you know, couldn't even get an inch in my nose without crying, I think, you know, it was, again, our advisory team and, and a really good set of doctors that said, we maybe question the sensitivity of a self-collect test. If you're not going deep enough, maybe you, you might get a lot of false negatives, right? So we ended up deploying a healthcare professional first approach, even nurses out to offices. And, and again, we did lots of COVID testing and it further validated that science and data should drive every decision we make. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, and the rest is history. And now as we exit, you know, kind of our COVID offering, because now we can really trust rapid antigen tests like those from Abbott right. and others. We're back focused on prevention testing mm -hmm. with partnerships, you know, looking at things like heart disease, hidden risk factors, cardiometabolic diseases, yeah. prediabetes, yeah. really easy things that you can action and test for reliably at home. Interesting. So you named the company I'm Aware. You're creating patient consumer awareness around their health, right? And I love the idea. And I think this is a trend, obviously, that's happening. Patients are becoming consumers of their health, right? Yeah. There's no longer a gatekeeper that you need to order your labs for you and wait for results and have a, you know, first you got to go to the doctor, have the initial visit, then get your labs ordered. Then you have to have another visit to go over the labs if there's something wrong. Yeah. It's a long process. It's not efficient. I think that people are demanding, right? People want visibility into their health. They want transparency. They want to see what the process looks like. They want to be able to track things. And there's a convergence of all of these things, not only your biomarkers, but your data, right? Your heart rate, your sleep, your food consumption, your habits, all this data coming together and giving yeah. you a full picture of your health, I think is a really beautiful thing happening. And unfortunately, traditional healthcare or sick care, as we call it, doesn't innovate in that way, right? I think a lot of innovation happens in the consumer space first. It's proven in the consumer space because, you know, you don't need to prove to payers that this works or that this is what people want or it creates results, right? Consumers can try it, test it out, demand it and show that it works. And then, you know, maybe in 10 years, payers will realize, oh, wow, this is really working. This is yeah. saving us money. But I really think innovation happens in the consumer space. Yeah. And so I think a lot of people are still skeptical and still are hesitant to say that's not the way health or, you know, laptops should be done. There should always be a doctor involved. I would challenge that. I think that if you can get access to your biomarkers, similar to how a continuous glucose monitor gives you insights into your health, which later down the road affects your behavior, right? Because you want behavior change ultimately. Yep. 
I think that that's a good thing. And uh, I don't think we need to be the gatekeepers for all of this. You know, there is the question, and I think skeptics would say, well, it creates unnecessary visits and unnecessary testing down the road if you get something that's elevated or wrong. But, you know, I think that's that's a separate conversation. I think it could have that potential, but I think the benefits outweigh the risks, in my opinion. And if you do have, if you do get something that's abnormal, Right. You, that's why you can have the patient visit and potentially screen something early enough to prevent a disaster maybe five years down yep. the line that would have cost the system a tremendous amount of money. Yep. Yeah. I don't know why we have to wait until sick care and diagnosis, you know, to look at these things. I do fully continue to support the healthcare community on doctors should diagnose, but should a blood test only be run as a confirmatory test, as a mm-hmm. diagnostic test? I don't think that makes sense. Like, if you can catch heart disease risk factors as they progress, if CRP is going up, if triglycerides are going up, if LDL is going up, you don't feel these symptoms as a person. So nothing's going to send you to the doctor. Right. So if you wait for an inevitable heart attack, well, then, yeah, you've got a whatever 50 percent chance of saving that person. If you just tested them annually, which we are trying to obviously do holistically, mm-hmm. you can start to see that, hey, these things are creeping up. Yeah. Let's start to move those back and keep them under control before the heart attack takes place. Right. We now are learning that you can start in many patients to pause, stop, and even reverse type two diabetes, right? So why wait until someone's so sick, you know, and then they have to go on meds? Why can't we catch that sooner, right? So I'm not a proponent for self-diagnosis right. and doing everything at home and skipping the doctor. Mm-hmm. I think the idea is let's get people aware of their own data and prioritize those that are going to the doctor. Mm-hmm. If the kind of the worried well can just be told, hey, everything's looking good and keep doing what you're doing, guess who's going to keep going to the doctor? Those that actually need care. You know, so I, maybe l- let's flip the narrative a bit and say, let's not be afraid of self-diagnosis being the reason we shouldn't test. Let's say, let's keep the worried well away from the physicians through routine testing and let's prioritize those that are falling through the system, the ones that have family history. Let's test them more. Let's get in front of them more and, and save the system millions, right? Right, right. Yeah. I like that you use the term worried well, because there is, I think there are certain demographics that don't find value in the traditional primary care system. You know, let's say a healthy 25 to 45 year old doesn't have really a lot of medical problems, doesn't see the value in having regular visits. Yeah. They'd probably want to just get their lab tests done every once in a while, have some idea of where their trends are. If something's off, you know, that'll prompt them to then maybe schedule a visit with their primary care and start more routine follow-up. Yeah. But, you know, working in primary care, really the majority of primary care visits are chronic disease management and, you know, urgent care type things and trying to get people who maybe have heart failure and all these other comorbidities from getting readmitted into the hospital or going to the hospital in the first place. Yeah. And so it is really getting more, it, 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 the trend is becoming, it's more complex sick care that primary cares have to manage rather than you get a healthy 35 year old that just wants to optimize their health. And, yeah. you know, because, you know, primary care isn't well equipped to, to, to help these sorts of individuals, right? Because you have a maybe 15, 20 minute visit and you've got 20 other patients that are really, really sick and you've got this pretty healthy individual that just wants to get healthier and better, right? And so you're not really serving them in the way that they want to be served. You're not giving them the value they're asking for because they want to optimize their health. They want to 
get key insights, right? And you're going to your primary care and they're just giving you the run of the mill information that you pretty much already know. Yeah. And for some well-informed health enthusiasts, they're probably a lot more well-informed on health habits and trends than their doctor. I was going to say 100%. I mean, <laughs> I went in, I wasted the time of an internal medicine doctor to get an annual checkup. I'm very fortunate that I have that available to me through insurance. And then, you know, like I said, two years ago and a year ago, my numbers in CRP, LDL, and triglycerides were in that sort of yellow range. Yeah. A doctor will never check your CRP in that, unless you know you're checking for some like... Well, it's funny, I get to go, or... I go tell what, what I want checked, right? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and so in that sense, like that would be something that would be amazing that I should just be able to self-manage and, you know, get these tests. And so I'm the perfect type of person that shouldn't be going right. to the hospital right now and wasting resources. Mm -hmm. I'd rather that go to somebody yeah. who's got, you know, an, a much more chronic condition. Yeah. So there's got to be some way to help these primary care docs keep people like myself out who are already reading a lot about things like mm -hmm. HRV and sleep and diet optimization and exercise and, you know, focus on those that have chronic care. If, if more people are getting chronically ill and there are less doctors in the system, that's those are two divergent curves that are going in the wrong directions, right? right. So yeah. 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 Well, there's, there are certain trends happening in, in primary here in the overall healthcare system in general. I think the consumer space is growing. Smart care is growing. The smart care being, you know, all these new remote patient monitoring devices and different ways to track your health. Care is moving away from the hospital into the homes. Care is moving into the communities. There's like this big transformation that's sort of been primed by COVID. Yeah. And now all these things are sort of changing and they're changing the environment that we're in. And add on top of that a huge shortage of physicians and mid-level providers that are available to provide care. There's a lot happening all at once right now. And we have to be ready to adapt for what's coming, right? A huge shortage in access to care yeah. and a huge empowerment of access to care. So patients are getting more empowered to have more ability to get transparency into certain lab parameters and biomarkers and data sets. And also just people aren't getting the access that they need, really. Yeah. We're going to see a lot of transformation <laughs> in the next five years, right? Yeah. I mean, one of the things I'd love to, we're, we're trying to find a partner with, and I think we're inching in on it, is we've seen good lateral flow response. Like people now trust lateral flow tests, right? So you, you do your rapid antigen test, you have COVID. Lots of people now are just like, okay, I got COVID. I'm going to stay at home. I'm not going to spread COVID. So the, I don't know how, like, there's got to be a significant reduction in hospitalizations due to COVID because people are now getting it for the second, third, fourth time. And, you know, only the most severe COVID cases are being hospitalized, right? I just mm -hmm. know anecdotally so many more people are trusting the rapid antigen test to then guide what they do next. Mm -hmm. And imagine we could do that for things like fast moving markers, CGMs are probably one thing, mm -hmm. but triglycerides like, hey, you know, you've been sort of binging the past 30 years. And did you know that you can adjust your triglycerides down over the next 30 days mm -hmm. in, and trend that data in a good direction? And here's a rapid antigen test to support you getting into that, you know, healthier zone. Mm -hmm. And then if you maintain in that healthy zone, guess what happens over time? LDLs start to drop too. And I just think that you're going to see testing prevalence increase to drive this commercial com consumerization of healthcare. Yeah. So rapid tests and back to your point about point of care tests, real, real point of care tests that are at the home real time to me are going to be what happens in the next five years. Yeah. So what would you say is the most surprising thing you learned from the consumers or the patients during your time building I'm aware? Just how dramatic food 
is in being the cause and solution to all of our care problems. Mm. The most mind-blowing one to me was that everyone thinks olive oil is healthy, and yet there's some pretty rancid olive oil out there, and we're starting to see data that consuming rancid olive oil, like, you know, kind of the bottom of the barrel quality stuff, actually increases oxidative stress markers. You can, like, test this increase in things. which markers are those? OxPL, for example. And most people don't even know about oxidized phospholipids. Is that a test you can get through IMOWARE? It's one we're beta testing, yeah. but oxidative stress is something other people measure it through OxLDL. Mm-hmm. And if you change the oxidative stress consumption of food, you know, these soybean oils and just like these really kind of high oxidative, high pro-inflammatory foods, lots mm-hmm. of omega-6s, and you change that one food item out, you can actually see your heart markers as measured by these oxidized phospholipids and LDLs trend back in a positive direction. Hmm. So it's mind blowing to me that food is medicine. We should be approaching food as medicine as like a level one thing. Right. And then imagine we could impact, you know, what we can do from there. And then secondly, omega-3s as a supplement, like mm-hmm. just, I just had a bad joke with a friend, like what if McDonald's could bake in a little bit of omega-3 into their <laughs> buns. They could be the number one, you know, solution provider for all-cause mortality reduction. Just a crazy idea. And obviously you're seeing more and more data and studies being run on omega-3 and still it's controversial. But I think things like this, their food as medicine, mm-hmm. it can be a real thing. And maybe not so strong as to say food as medicine, but food as a way to prevent further illness, right? Let's pick our words carefully here, but... Yeah. Well, I think there's something very powerful about being able to look at something, see data around it, especially yourself, data from your own body, and see how small behavioral changes or small substitutions can create a change, right? I find it very difficult for when I see a patient and they come in and we're talking about their health and I'm trying to convince them to do certain things and change certain things. They're going to forget that conversation 10 minutes after they leave the clinic and they're going to go back home and they're going to do the exact same things they've always been doing. Yeah. Right. This is just the harsh reality of like, that's why I like this lifestyle coaching and talking to people about making changes. Like, is it probably a very negligible percentage of those people that actually make any change after you just have a conversation? right? Lifestyle coaching that you end up billing for, right? They don't work, right? There's a reason that people don't make a change until they've had a heart attack, right? There's a reason people don't stop smoking until their heart stopped working, right? People need something to happen or they need to see something to make a change. And that's what I love about what you're building with I'm Aware, with all these consumer products that give you awareness and insights into your health. I think when you can see these things in real time, and see how one small change actually affects you in another way, we can actually make change in a much more meaningful way globally or across the entire country. Yeah. There's obviously issues around this. Like I'm not naive to the fact that a lot of people can't afford this and that a lot of people will never be able to do this sorts of thing because it's, it's expensive, right? But what I'm saying is that all innovation starts in the consumer space. And it's the Model T wasn't something that was just for everybody when it first, for you know, the really wealthy initially, right? That's how I think certain things start off, unfortunately. But eventually, 20 years down the road, 50 years down the road, this is something that could potentially be in everybody's hands. Yep, no, 100%. We gotta start somewhere, right? right? And I just think there's also ways where in healthcare, a lot of things, less is more. Mm-hmm. Like if we all just ate, <laughs> ate a little less, 
cut back. Like there's so many basic things we can do. Mm -hmm. Even again, in my own sort of smaller community of whoop wearers, everybody who cut out a little bit of excessive carbs and sort of switched the order of that carbohydrate, changed their their HRV for the better, decreased that little extra poundage around the waist. Like those are all good, positive momentum indicators. And then guess what? You measure them with blood tests and triglycerides and LDL are going down. So these are, they're very simple wins here that, you know, we don't have to move the needle on and cut these numbers by 50%, but by five to 10% is a Mm -hmm. huge gain. I guess the other thing is it's hard to know your heart is something you just don't feel, you know? So why make a change today that will only affect me 20 years down the road? It's like, how do you, how do you start teaching people about the fact that picture yourself at 65 and imagine you could have 10 more years of quality life, the things you do today, you can make that happen. It's like, I really wish we could see a fast forwarded version of ourselves, limping, stuck on a couch, immobile and be like, Hey, let's make changes now so that this can be you running with your grandkids. Like I'd love to build an app where you take a picture of yourself and then it shows you (laughs) distressed and immobile 20 years from now. Right. And and it shocks you. So you're like, Whoa, I don't want to be that person. I want to be healthier. Right. Yeah. Well, I guess people now can, I guess there are ways to check your biological age, right? Through like your, telomere length, I believe. I guess there's one way, I guess you can see like how old you really are biologically by getting a certain genetic test. And I don't know a lot about this space. I'm sure you know a lot more about it. <laughs> yeah, but even a, exactly a, a collection of genetic and, and biomarker-based data points mm-hmm. can actually help you start to infer your age. And I think we're going to see, like I, my hope is 10 years from now, we look back on sort of the stone age we're in right now, mm-hmm. like where we're looking at three biomarkers to determine health. Yeah. And, you know, we'll start to look at 500 and, you know, look at robustness around cardiometabolic health, not just LDL, yeah. right? Like that can't be the one all marker that people make clinical decisions on. There's so much more yeah. information around heart health and the holistic vascular health and everything else that we should be looking at. And we'll look back and say, hey, we're in the stone age and, you know, 10 years from now, we'll be making all these decisions based on so many more data points and yeah. real-time collection of it and stuff like that. Yeah, I, and I think it'll highlight the importance of like things we already know, like exercise being probably the most important thing you can do for your heart health, right? It's just like how much, like if you could put exercise in a pill, it'd be a trillion dollar pill, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. I think I think once people can start seeing that in real time and seeing how like 20 or 30 minutes of exercise a day is actually affecting their health and seeing the improvements, I think that'll, that'll go a long way. Yeah. Yeah. We need to make things addictive, right? Cause too much of gamify. Not, yeah. Not doing something right now is being, is addictive. You know, spending too yeah. much time on social media is addictive. It's like, how do you make addiction happen in a positive way? Yeah. You know, with a, a reward system, our brain is, does reward us for exercise. Yeah. We're supposed to get those dopamine hits and things like that, but I guess yeah. it's not strong enough. So yeah. it's a weird thing. Like all the, there's so much, I think our generation has it particularly difficult in that you need so much self-control in today's day and age, so much discipline to not fall victim to certain bad habits, right? Like now you have internet addiction, you have social media, you have porn, a click away, you have like all these different things that you can just easily become addicted to. And you have to have discipline, self-control to stay away from them and it's just, it's like, I feel like it, the the brain, the human brain was not made for it to have this this much discipline. And it's like, you have all this, this candy way. around you at all times and dopamine hits that you just have to be conscious of what you're doing to your brain. 
Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy times, right? (laughs) Let's fast forward 20 years from now. Where do you see yourself? Where do you see I'm aware? Where do you see the future of sort of this healthcare paradigm of consumer health being? Well, the sustained spending, you know, every year over year, 10% increases in total healthcare costs going up. That's just unsustainable. So even within 20 years, there's going to have to be some payer revolution or, or some kind of change. It may not happen fast, but it's certainly subsets of people will be forgotten and eventually they'll rebel against that system and a new system of payer coverage or, you know, will we'll change. So well within 20 years, we're going to see some kind of payer evolution and coverage and things like that. I don't know what the answer is. And when you change the way the payer thinks about things, then I think we'll see a lot of trickle down effect. So, you know, sometime eventually people will figure out healthcare is cheaper than sick care and converging that with data and technology that can support that more frequent collection will be able to prioritize care for the right people. Right. So I don't even think it's going to take 20 years for all that sort of to happen. Mm-hmm. Do you think the misaligned interests in healthcare will be a deterrent to that being the case? In, and when I say misaligned interests, I mean, insurance companies have their own interests. Hospitals have their own interests. Providers have their own interests. And then patients have their interests. Yeah. It's just they're all, nobody's really aligned in the sense of what's good for the actual patient for society may not be good for the pockets of another stakeholder. Yeah. It might be controversial to say this, but I think every industry that's been disrupted Mm -hmm. and has had to be changed, whether it was insurance where you went through a broker or, you know, banking or investing, and then it became online investing. Every time you cut out a layer, Mm -hmm. it feels like that, that existing layer is resisting it and fighting it. And in healthcare, there's just so many layers. It's hard to know which one to go after first, but Mm -hmm. every one of those layers is being attacked. I love Mark Cuban, low cost drug co, you know, and, and I think if we can bring transparency and consumerism to all the different layers of it, it'll eventually, you know, kind of fall apart and a new model will come in. It's not like healthcare disruption means patients will have no care. It just means it'll shift dollars into a new entity, a new mechanism, a new way to get them care, hopefully more efficient than the one it's replacing. And time has shown, you know, historically that every new evolution does bring more access to that consumer group, online trading, online banking. You're getting more people into retail trading, more people into buying their own insurance. They got to believe that we can equip the consumer, they'll make better decisions for themselves and then that'll be better for the overall industry. So I think we can do the same with healthcare. I think you're thinking about direct primary care even. Perfect way to start disrupting some of this legacy primary care. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot of opportunity for empowering people to get better care, empowering people to have better access, empowering people with knowledge and data. I think all those things are great. Yeah. And we have a one force working in our favor. Insurance is getting more expensive. Higher, you know, deductible plans are increasing. More and more people have those. Mm -hmm. And so it's cheaper for, you know, 80% of people on insurance to buy an iMore test than it is to get that covered by their own insurance plan. (laughs) So as that cost goes up and as our costs go down, more and more people will hopefully choose to do an at-home test or a cash pay test Mm -hmm. than an insurance covered test, which is sort of defeating the purpose of insurance. So eventually when that high deductible plan becomes so expensive or so useless in its coverage, yeah. you know, a new insurance scheme is going to pop up and, and yeah. provide better care and coverage. Yeah. So it's all going to happen in the next five years here. And yeah. you're going to see a lot of, I think when we come out of COVID and this recession, you're going to see a lot of push and really 
kind of moving healthcare into yeah. a new direction. Yeah, yeah, I love that. What are the most common tests that are being requested right now from consumers, people, you know, patients at home that just want more insights? STI testing is like right. off the backs of COVID, people realized they could test for something that was you have it or you don't. Mm -hmm. And so an STI test is one we get just huge amounts of requests for. Okay. I'm aware should offer that. So we will be offering yeah. that later this year in partnership with a really cool partner to take that out nationally. Mm -hmm. And again, you just know you have it and then you can get appropriate treatments. A lot of testing around just cardiometabolic testing, people who've missed out on heart health testing for the last year, two or three, just want to know where they're at. Yeah. So you're seeing a push towards that at the home. And then um, I think we're starting to see employers really pick up caring in more of this healthcare versus sick care. Mm -hmm. So they want to start to look at groups and, you know, go after things like colon cancers or prostate cancers for certain groups of men or, you know, other subsets of audiences where they can make a real difference and catch something earlier. So you're seeing employers care more about that. And so they're ordering more types of like focus tests. Very cool. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Yanni. This was a really good conversation. Yeah. You know, we got some, I know you got some meetings coming up, so I want to be mindful of your time, but I'd love for you to share where our listeners can learn more about I'm Aware, learn more about yourself, maybe connect with you if they'd like to do that and so on and so forth. No, absolutely. I mean, I've told you this, I love supporting, you know, the community of healthcare innovators, whether you're, you are a practicing doctor or, or you want to be someone who's getting into healthcare for the first time. I've, mm. I've learned a lot of things, you know, the easy way, the hard way and everything in between. So <laughs> I'd love to be a resource for your community and you can find me on LinkedIn. I'll give you that link after. And then for I'm aware, we're just I M A W A R E dot health. Very easy to find on Google. We've got some really good SEOs. So come check us out at I'm aware and um, you can see what we're doing in terms of building next gen tests, assays and at home capabilities. Awesome. Thank you. Yanni. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Hey guys, thanks for tuning into the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this one. Please share on your socials. If you enjoyed this episode, tag us at beyond underscore med. You can also tag me at webby, W-E-B-B-Y, spelled it a little differently, dot D-O, webby dot D-O. That's my Instagram. You can also tag our Beyond Medicine page, beyond underscore med. Thanks again. We hope to see you guys again soon. And don't forget, if you are a physician, innovator, founder or investor beyondmedicinegroup.com join our slack group this is a private community with digital health leaders we have over 250 digital health leaders in our community already we share things on our job board we share content we share information we crowdsource all that good stuff this is a private community um, and we really try to focus on bringing in the highest quality individuals into this group and so if you are in that criteria, check out the website beyondmedicinegroup.com forward slash community. We'll see you there.